This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 25th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with the author and journalist Deepa Faloyan. We'll hear about the War Up Close exhibition in Washington, plus... We learned that among Vladimir Putin's many misjudgments was one about the metal of his opposite number, a comedian who had campaigned for Ukraine's presidency substantially by starring in a sitcom in which he made fun of Ukraine's presidency. We'll find out what the war in Ukraine has taught us. Do stay with us. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. Nigerians go to the polls today to elect a successor to President Mohamedou Buhari, with many hoping the next leader will steer Africa's most populous nation and biggest economy on a new course after years of worsening violence and hardship. China's call for a comprehensive ceasefire in Ukraine on the first anniversary of the war, and President Vladimir Zelensky said he was open to considering parts of a 12-point peace plan put forward by Beijing. Meanwhile, former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev said the only way for Moscow to ensure a lasting peace with Ukraine was to push back the borders of hostile states as far as possible, even if that meant the frontiers of NATO member Poland. Air India, now owned by the Tata Group, says it plans to hire over 4,200 cabin crew and 900 pilots this year as part of a major revamp that saw the carrier seal orders for a record 470 jets earlier this month. And Canada's renowned Rideau Canal Skateway, the world's largest natural ice skating rink, will not open this season for the first time due to a lack of ice, its operator said on Friday, blaming the closure on climate change. And Southern California has been hit by a rare winter storm. It's even snowed in Hollywood. Well, let's have a look at the day's papers now. And my guest today is Deepo Faloyan, who is a journalist and the author of the book Africa is Not a Country. And Deepo and I had a wonderful conversation about his book on Monocle Reads a few months ago. Uh, Deepo, tell us a little bit more about it. It's your debut book and it's done incredibly well. Uh, yes. Um, thank you so much for having me this morning. Um, so Africa is Not a Country is a portrait of modern Africa that pushes back against harmful stereotypes to tell a more comprehensive story of the continent's past, present and its future. Um, you know, those stereotypes being when people think about Africa, they think about poverty and safari and very else in between. And so the book aims to uh, portray a more kind of context filled uh, version of, of the history of the continent and explain just how unique and diverse this region is. And it, it's been such a pleasure um, talking to, to people about the book, being able to go to schools and talking to young people um, about uh, the history of the continent and about why these stereotypes have lingered for so long. And, mm. and it, it's been a real joy. And I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? People will go, well, in uh, Belgium and in France and in Africa. And you yes. <laughs> you're lucky to get the 54 on. countries. Here. You, have to, you know, and it's <laughs> It's it's the fact that it's lingered for so long, I think, is something that, you know, for me, um, as someone who's passionate about storytelling and a passionate about people's identity and, and telling the stories of communities, I think that for this for this region of 1.4 billion people, um, it seems continues to shock me that uh, people 
try and lump it all as, as one big group. Yeah, yeah. And you were born in Chicago. You were raised in Nigeria, and of course now you <laughs> live here in London. Uh, Nigeria, of course, in the news today because yes. I think it's ninety-four million people mm-hmm. are registered to vote or mm-hmm. are eligible also, to vote, yeah. uh, and they're voting today. They are. Yes, I think it's ninety-four million are eligible um, to vote today because they have they have registered to vote and they've picked up their um, voter card, which is the highest number that that is that have ever done so. And so it, it sort of shows just what a huge moment this is for Nigeria and, and and for a country who has had a difficult history when it has come to uh, democracy. But in recent years, um, you know, this is the seventh election since the end of the uh, end of military rule. Um, and in that time, you know, there's we've already seen a president lose his re-election bid. And this time, uh, you know, young people are pushing not only for a ruling party to to lose, but also the main opposition to lose as well, and for a third party candidate to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, it, you know, we're seeing this kind of growing, um, growing democratic exercise. But you know, it feels like such a seismic moment for the country. Well, and for the world, really, because what happens in Nigeria really affects the region, and then, of course, has knock on effects all over the world. Just, just. Tell us a little bit more about it. I mean, we know it's Africa's most populous mm-hmm. nation. It's also the kind of economic powerhouse. Yeah, it's, it's this economic powerhouse. It's, it's, it's a lot of African countries look to Nigeria diplomatically to assist on, on, on a range of matters. And, and so, you know, Nigeria and Nigerians themselves like to consider themselves um, as this, uh, this sort of leading light of, of the continent and tries to show a, a region that, the average age is, you know, well below 40 at this stage, you know, that there is a way in which uh, young people can come together and organize and push for change within their nation. And I think that is something that not only um, should people around the continent be inspired by, but something that any uh, youth-led movement around the world should look look at and say, you know, how did they do it? And, and whether, you know, the, the third party candidate Peter Obi wins or not today, I think that, you know, the country has come so far in its ability to organize politically and socially. Um, and for a lot of the traditional barriers that have often uh, gotten in the way of democratic exercise when it comes to sort of the divisions across ethnic groups, the way in which kind of people have come together across these ethnic groups in different religions and ages to try and at least show the you know traditional political powers that they can't take people for granted anymore. Mm. Now, people are saying this is too close to call. Nobody knows what's mm-hmm. going to happen. But I understand Peter Obi was quite a, a, a last-minute addition mm-hmm. to to the to the, um, the uh, candidacy. Yeah, right? the process. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Um, but people had to register to vote by September, and that might be a problem for his support. Yeah, no. Um, the 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 registration simple the registration system is quite cumbersome and challenging. So you know you had to register by September. You had to. You have to kind of go on multiple days. People have uh, reported that um, when they've gone to pick up their voter cards, these are sort of the identity cards that you need to take when you vote, um, that, you know, they've been told, oh, you have to come back on another day. It's not ready. All these things have been um, a, a real frustration. But part of that process of organizing is to is to help people kind of go through that process and to make sure that um, people have access to the resources that they need to ensure that, um, that their vote is counted. So, you know, that will you know, count against him. Um, I think because, you know, young people across the world tend to do things quite late when it comes to registering to vote. Um, But I I think it sort of, there has been kind of significant 
progress made. And I think there was a real effort among people to, to make sure that, you know, there were real kind of uh, voter registration drives and, and all these things that, that occurred. And I, I think that can only get better in the future as well. Mm. And of course, what Nigeria is hoping for is an end to violence, yeah. uh, an end to these awful kidnappings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also saw, though, just on the eve of the election, uh, a, a senator or somebody who was hoping mm-hmm. to be a senator murdered. Yeah. Uh, is that a fear that there will be a lot of violence surrounding the election? In recent elections, there have there hasn't been violence, and and so there, there's a lot of hope going into this election that there won't be uh, any violence. Um, the, all the candidates uh, met this week in Abuja, the capital, and signed a sort of a peace accord and all shook hands. And um, President Buhari believes it's part of his legacy that uh, that he oversaw a free and fair election. He came into power after. Um, you know, after defeating an incumbent who quickly conceded the election. Um, so he benefited from a free and fair election. So he is seen as part of his legacy. Um, and Atiku Abubakar, the the sort of traditional main opposition leader, has said that, you know, this isn't a, a do or die thing for him. Um, there is certain concerns over uh, Bola Ahmed Tinubu, who's the candidate for the ruling party. He, he has express this sort of desperate, real desperation to become president. And I think that that there is some concern over, you know, what happens there if he loses. But it's not obvious without the mechanisms of government behind him with the president saying, you know, this will be part of my legacy of a free, regardless of who wins, um, I will leave office and I will transfer over to the winner. You know, without the mechanisms of government, it's, it's not it's not easy to see how any one candidate can can cause uh, much violence. But, you know, pe- people are, it, it feels like such a big moment that people are, of course, you know, always going to be on edge and worried. But, you know, recent history has shown that um, that we shouldn't expect violence. But, you know, it, it's always important to, to be on your guard. Yeah. Now, Nigeria was part one of the 140 UN members who demanded that Russia withdraw from, mm-hmm. from Ukraine. Uh, and again, not wishing to lump Africa together, mm-hmm. but South Africa abstained. Yeah. Uh, uh, Angola abstained. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Zimbabwe abstained. Yep. So, I mean, that that's a great thing. Nigeria has backed this absolutely and is very much against this war. Yeah, absolutely. From the beginning, Nigeria has done that and, and has, has proudly done that and, and has sort of felt... Uh, has has attempted to sort of garner support across the continent um, against the war and against and against and against Russia's actions, um, and you know for Nigerians that's where we want to see Nigeria, you know, out there being a, a leader around the continent, being able to to galvanize uh, support in the right direction across the region. Uh, that that is a really essential thing for for many Nigerians, and they want to feel that pride in the in the, in the country. You know, we can't only uh, celebrate having the highest population in the region or you know there has to that has to come with a certain uh, responsibility and and what Nigerians are looking for is for Nigeria to take up that mantle um, and to through this election and through and through other steps as well kind of really show that uh, we have that ability to to lead around the region and around the world as well you know it's, it's not just in Africa you know we want people to look at Nigeria and say you know oh, what incredible development they, they've made in in the last few years uh, democratically and in the ability for people across the region regardless of your ethnicity or your, your gender or uh, your religion to, to, to 
force change in your nation. Mm, Absolutely. Well, let's head to Washington now, where commemorations of the anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine included a special one-day exhibition entitled War Up Close, which uses virtual reality to bring home the destruction wrought by Russia in Ukraine over the past year. The exhibition was housed in a new museum in the US capital run by Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak has been speaking with Andrew Bremberg, He's a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and the foundation's president. And he began by describing the foundation's mission and its newfound relevance in light of the war in Ukraine. We were chartered by Congress actually in 1993 to commemorate and memorialize all the victims of communism, which, of course, at the time, I think everyone thought was all going to be past tense. But they recognized the need to educate and the risk that people would somehow forget. I look back at the image and the example of Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin, one of the worst murderers of human history, you know, communist dictator that unfortunately many Americans know very little about. In speaking with young people, if they know who Joseph Stalin was, they frequently may identify him as correctly as the head of the Soviet Union, but only then as an a US ally against the Nazis. This is, you know, after Mao Zedong, the second worst mass murderer of human history, and the specific examples in Ukraine, the state-imposed famine by Stalin in the 1930s called the Holodomor that resulted in the death of millions of Ukrainians. This is the backdrop in history that Americans don't know that someone like Vladimir Putin knows extremely well. We've been asked many times about, well, Russia isn't communist today, so so what does this mean? And I always explain, sure, we have a different style authoritarian dictator in Russia today. The government is officially not communist, but Vladimir Putin is a KGB thug. This guy was shaped and formed by his professional upbringing within the Communist Party in the Soviet Union and learned those tools and tactics and has publicly, repeatedly lamented the fall of the Soviet empire and not only try to rehabilitate, but I would say even try to lionize and praise the image of Joseph Stalin in particular as an incredibly important, heroic, historic figure. So if we in the US and the West are uneducated and do not know about that history, we are missing a lot and risk really misunderstanding what the intentions are of other governments, other leaders, when even when they're saying it pretty quite clearly. Tell me about the museum, the exhibition spaces here. What have you done over the past year? What kind of exhibits have you put on? You also have a permanent exhibition. Mm -hmm. How do you use that to educate people about the past and link it to today? Well, we are thrilled that last year, last summer, we were able to open this museum, the Victims of Communism Museum, to the public. It's been a real blessing. We are just two blocks from the White House, right in the heart of downtown Washington, D.C. Uh, we've got different types of exhibits. As you mentioned, we have a permanent gallery that goes through both the kind of history of the origins of communism and the rise of now the, the USSR. And then we also cover you know, the kind of Cold War era the U.S. conflict with communism as an ideology, but also the rise of this resistance to communism in Central and Eastern Europe, culminating then in 1989 
with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And between 1989 and 1991, the complete fall of Soviet communism and the freeing of Central and Eastern Europe from communist regimes. Of course, we, we end with the message that communism is still, unfortunately, uh, here in, in the world today. There are five countries still under nominally communist dictatorships. We pay a lot of attention to the Chinese Communist Party, which has been the most aggressive in terms of threatening its neighbors in other countries and having the, the worst human rights record of any country in the world today. We also have a temporary gallery. A previous exhibit that we had there was specifically on the Tiananmen Square Massacre, 1989. Incredibly brave student leaders that had led those student protests had been arrested by the police that later, years later, were able to flee China and find refuge here in the United States, worked with us to put together this display. Unfortunately, it was the only display anywhere in the world. There used to be a small museum in Hong Kong that commemorated the June 4th massacre. But of course, that museum has since been shut down. Now we have a temporary exhibit on the Cuba political prisoners system, going back to the beginning of the Castro era, but still very present today. Part of the exhibit is done through artwork. Uh, some of your listeners may know that in the summer of 2021, we saw the largest civil protests against the Cuban dictatorship that we'd seen in decades. And over a thousand political prisoners have been taken and arrested and are still in prison. So some of the artwork that we have on display here is by artists that have either been arrested or gone missing, and those that are, are speaking out on their behalf to draw attention to the brutality of the political prisons happening in Cuba today. Right now, we have this exhibition on the war in Ukraine. It's partly a virtual reality exhibition to really show, to bring people into what has happened over the past year. Tell me about the exhibition, but also about, I guess, the importance for particularly Americans to bring the war to them in, in that way. It does feel like I've spoken to people here compared to living in Europe who say it's harder for, for people here to get a real sense of just what's happening so, you know, so many thousands of miles away. It does feel for many Americans like a very distant war. It's, it's not taking place on our continent. Having been in Romania the day the war began and having traveled back to the region since, it's a very different experience. Having a war break out on the European continent, I think, is more shocking for Europeans. And I think there's an understandable difference that, you know, that's very far from us. But I think, it, as, as you mentioned, it's vitally important for us to make sure we, we educate Americans about what impact this war is having and why it is so important for us in the United States to stand for our Western democratic values and remind people why you know, this war must be stopped and Russia's aggression must be pushed back. So what the real focus of this exhibit is, is to really make visually and kind of viscerally present to our visitors what this war looks like for those living in Ukraine. The exhibit includes artifacts of you know, materials that have been destroyed, kind of normal objects, you know, a soccer ball, a, a film reel, other things that we would see as normal objects but have been destroyed by the war. But then more broadly, as you mentioned, the immersive virtual reality experience of the exhibit that places you in a Ukrainian city, which you know, is, is a modern European city, and then before your eyes, you see this turned into you know, a war zone, 
turned into rubble, buildings destroyed right in front of your face that you see what this looked like before. And sometimes we risk being desensitized to some of that, but kind of taking the time to kind of immerse yourself in it, see it and really understand the context of what you're seeing, I think is powerful for our visitors. And that was Andrew Bramberg, who's head of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. He was speaking to Monocle's Chris Chermak. And you can see the special Ukraine War Up Close exhibition described in that interview in a number of European capitals over the weeks, over the next few weeks. And of course, a number of European capitals uh, were uh, celebrating, is the wrong word, uh, commemorating, marking the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, there was a big vigil uh, in London. They met at uh, in Holland Park and then marched by candle light to the Russian embassy. And you saw variations on that happening all over the world. Lots and lots of coverage of of, of, of this one year anniversary, Deepak. Yeah, we, we saw a lot of coverage, uh, not only you know, across politics, but also culturally as well. Um, people really taking the time to, to really consider all that's happened over the last year. You know, the, the, it, it's been a year, but it still sort of feels so shocking still that, that this occurred. And, and the way in which the war impacted, you know, so many regions uh, across the world. You know, uh, yesterday I, I was reading about, you know, many of the students who, you know, were 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 studying out in in Ukraine, um, who were forced to to leave and, and head back to uh, African countries, and, and the struggles that they had um, in just getting out of the country, and, and and kind of seeing the way in which their education continues to be stalled, and and you you see similar stories in the way in which the war has touched, you know, uh, people just across the world. And, and that was uh, definitely represented in, in the way in which it was marked yesterday. Mm. And I think people have been uh, uh, very impressed by the way not only Ukrainians have pulled together, but how Europe is absolutely behind this. I mean, Ursula von der Leyen has mm. been saying, you know, this is the heart of mm-hmm. Europe. We are all sort of part of Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, and I did an event actually on on, a, on Thursday evening, I think it was, or sometime this week, at the London Library with um, Oksana Zhibushka who is one of Ukraine's foremost writers. Uh, and it was absolutely packed, just lots and lots of people there to hear what she had to say about it because she's written this book called My Longest Book Tour. And she was in Poland for three days for the launch of her book, in uh, her previous book in, in Polish. And she arrived there on the 23rd and, of course, war broke out on the 24th. And that's, she's been on book tour ever since um, and has now <laughs> written a, yeah. a, a book about it, but is one of those people who is going out there and just telling the world about what's going on. And so many people whose lives were expected to be other, the head of the Ukrainian Institute, who's here yeah. to promote language and culture, is now talking about the war. Yeah. It's 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 extraordinary how everybody's kind of picked this up. Well, at, at, at that event, and indeed at a dinner mm-hmm. after, uh, was uh, Katerina Yuchchenko, who is the former first lady. Yeah. of Ukraine and in fact she came into the to the studio on Friday morning and it was just so moving to have somebody of the, of that standing yeah. to talk about how proud she felt of her country but also how you know when uh, Zelensky took over it was a kind of joke for many yeah. people mm-hmm. uh, and you know politically um, the Yushchenkos and Zelensky are not aligned yeah. but she had nothing but praise for the man yeah absolutely and, and you, you you sort of see that in, in the way in which kind of people talk about the, the circumstances and, and Zelensky and, and the reality that they faced and I, I think it's sort of interesting the way in which you know you described the, how you know people have 
taken up this as a personal cause, how it's kind of changed the trajectory of so many people's lives and the way in which we think about this, this, uh, our relationships with each other and, 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 and sort of global alliances. And I remember when the war first broke out, you know, there, there was a lot of uh, common wisdom that said, you know, within a month, everyone will have war fatigue, no one will be talking about it, we would have all moved on. And traditionally, that often happens when it comes to situations like this. Mm. But a year later, it certainly feels like there is real investment still in in this ongoing, um, ongoing uh, crisis. And, uh, where people kind of want to want to move towards is you know finding a way in which we can hopefully by this time next year talk about how the war was able to come to an end. Absolutely. Well, this week's regular What We Learn monologue looks at what we've learned since Russia invaded Ukraine. Here is Andrew Muller. We learned this week that the producers had been having ideas again. No, don't. No, no, no. In fairness, it doesn't happen that often, and really, what can you do? Always grateful for the support of the General Muttered Agreement crew at such trying times. We learned that the producers had noticed that February 24th, when this monologue was first due to air, precisely coincided with the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and they reckoned that a reflection on what we have learned from 12 months of Russia's 72-hour special military operation might therefore be in order. So thinking back 12 months, we learned that the word of Russia is not necessarily its bond. We were as shocked as you were, because we had learned as late as February 20th, 2022, that Russia had absolutely no designs on Ukraine whatsoever, that the merest thought of invasion had not even contemplated the vaguest prospect of crossing Russia's mind, and we learned this from no less an authority than Russia's ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov. I will start from basic things. There is no innovation and there is no such plans. We learned four days later that the ambassador may have neglected to check his spam folder. After months of preparations, the Russian president Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. Speaking on national television, Mr Putin urged Ukrainian troops to lay down their arms and go home. Well, that was the idea. We have been learning since then of the extreme reluctance of Ukraine's troops and Ukraine's people generally to fulfil their assigned role in Vladimir Putin's plan, and we have learned more broadly of the eternal wisdom of the maxim usually credited to the Prussian Field Marshal Helmuth von Moltke, along the lines that no plan survives contact with the enemy, later paraphrased by the American boxer Mike Tyson, who noted that everybody has a plan until they get smacked in the mouth. And we learned, indeed, that among those Ukrainians declining to play their part in Putin's plan was Kiev's own heavyweight champion, now the city's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko. The Russians have plans to occupy Kiev already three weeks ago. But our army destroyed whole plans of Russians. And Russians, I am, as mayor, told to you to talk to everyone. Never ever Russians to come to our city. Better we die if give the city to Russia. But we would, from the very first weeks of Russia's onslaught, learn a perhaps more startling tutorial in leadership from an arguably less likely source, specifically the narrator of the Ukrainian releases of the Paddington Bear films. 
но мне мило. Я очень надеюсь, что у меня тоже есть такие черты. Ну, по крайней мере, я стараюсь. And indeed, Ukraine's 2006 Dancing with the Stars champion. We learned that among Vladimir Putin's many misjudgments was one about the metal of his opposite number, a comedian who had campaigned for Ukraine's presidency substantially by starring in a sitcom in which he made fun of Ukraine's presidency. Hello? Good morning, Mr. Kolobarochka. Can I connect you with Angela Merkel? Yes, you can connect. Hello. My congratulations. We decided to take your country to the European Union. We learned that there are, despite what we had learned from the experiments in this field of one or two other countries, advantages to having a professional showman in charge, as President Volodymyr Zelensky embarked on a virtual world tour by video link, expertly tailoring his routine to the local crowd. To the Parliament of the United Kingdom, he went heavy on the Churchill. We will fight in the forest, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. We will fight on the banks of the rivers and we are looking for your help, for the help of the civilized countries. To the Congress of the United States, he reminded of a previous date that would live in infamy. We need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember. And we learned that he'd done his homework on Spain, where he compared Mariupol to Guernica, on France, where he compared Mariupol to Verdun, on Germany, where he spoke of a new wall Moscow was attempting to build across Europe, and invoked a previous entertainer-turned-president who'd had something to say on such subjects. The former uh, actor, US president, um, Ronald Reagan, when he was here in Berlin, he said in his Berlin uh, speech, Mr. President, tear down this uh, wall. So let me tell the same thing now. Constance Schultz, please uh, tear down this uh, wall. Interpreter having a long week, clearly, but you get the gist. We learned or were reminded that a leader without followers is just a fellow taking a walk. President Zelensky is not the only Ukrainian whose resolve in the face of a dreadful threat we have learned to admire. There are, give or take, 44 million more of them, from whom the rest of us can only hope to have learned something about courage, and if we can't learn that, we can perhaps at least absorb the lesson that little good ever comes of indulging or appeasing tyrants in the hope that they'll calm down eventually. And over the 12 months to date of Russia's absurd, petulant, monstrous rampage, we have learned of no better way of summing it up than the words of Ukrainian border guard Roman Hribov, serving with the small garrison on Snake Island in the Black Sea early in the conflict, who were instructed to surrender by the crew of a Russian warship. You don't need a translation. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
Many thanks there to Andrew Muller. Well, still with me is Deepo Faloyan, who is a journalist and author of Africa is Not a Country. Deepo, of course, one of the uh, big concerns about this uh, invasion or one of one of the circumstances that, that might change this is the weather. Uh, and people have been really worrying about what happens mm-hmm. in the depths of winter, which is right now, yeah. it's made it very, very right. difficult for yeah. people, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been, a, it's, it's been a real challenge and it's been something that's been on people's minds for a while now. And <clears throat> it's something that, you know, we're something is going to have to come uh, as a solution from it but yeah it's been a, it's been a real concern for mm. a lot of people in it and last year as well but it's just been uh, something that's been on people's minds uh, and of course uh, as we were reporting in our headlines today the weather's been extremely unpredictable yeah. so we know that that uh, in Canada the largest natural ice skating rink won't open because there's lack mm-hmm. of ice uh, but we also know that there's been huge winter storms in southern California yeah. uh, very rare um, and even Hollywood I've seen signs of kind of you know, light dusting of snow in, mm-hmm. in the Hollywood Hills, which is extraordinary. I mean, I think... Yeah, I believe there was some, some snow in Texas recently in some regions for the first time in, you know, beyond kind of people's uh, memories. And yeah. um, it's, it's just this constant phenomenon that, you know, people continually need to take more and more seriously. Yeah. Now, of course, you were born in Chicago, so cold weather is no stranger yes, for you. Uh, but growing up extreme. in Nigeria, and for me growing up in Zimbabwe, snow was such a complete novelty. It's. Still, I mean, for my, my uh, nephew and nieces who are in uh, Nigeria still, the idea of it snowing at Christmas still blows their minds. Um, and <laughs> yeah. they, they keep sort of pleading, like, please, can we, can we go and experience some snow during Christmas? But, um, you know, even in you know many of these, uh, in sort of countries around Africa, you're seeing snow. You know, slightly different weather patterns and and uh, you know in Nigeria recently you had this sort of prolonged rain period um, that has never been seen before. So, you know, you're seeing these sort of uh, shifts shifts everywhere. Yeah. Now, I always use as my excuse for the fact that I don't ski that I'm African, so why would yeah, I? Yeah, no, I don't. Uh, but so are you, and you do ski. <laughs> no, actually, no. I, I, well, I use that excuse until... Uh, pretty much all my friends were going on a ski trip. I said, fine, I will go this one time. Um, and it was once and once only. Um, I, f- <laughs> I fell way too many times um, for me to continue to... My pride couldn't take it at that point. So I, <laughs> I have returned since to the excuse of, uh, I'm Nigerian, this is not what we do. Yeah, it's not what we do. However, our Deputy Head of Radio, Tom Webb, does, and he's in St. Moritz. It's uh, day three of four at the winter edition of Nomad, which is the travelling art and design showcase. It's set in the historic Art Nouveau Grace Lemania Hotel. Uh, and Tom is up the mountain. He joins us now. Good morning to you, Tom. Good morning, Georgina. How are you doing? Uh, well, we're fine. <laughs> we're talking about not skiing. Uh, have you managed to get any skiing while you're there? Do you know, Tyler Brule is skiing right now as we speak. Uh, Talking about light dusting of snow, it's a terrible time to be skiing. It's two degrees here. Uh, It's very, very sunny. Um, But tomorrow we are expecting it to drop to minus 11 and a big snowfall is expected. So the skiers will be pleased. But now it's looking a bit too warm. I'm actually standing on the ice on uh, St. Moritz Lake. Uh, You may hear some cars behind me. This is because it's the ice St. Moritz Vintage Car Festival. Uh, There's 50 cars currently racing, speeding around the ice. They're judged at high speed. Um, Not to be alarmist, the ice is melting. There are cars 
cars on it. Uh, they are they are checking it every hour. Apparently, it's 45 centimeters thick where the cars are. That's okay for them. Not so much for me, who's slipping in it a little bit. Georgina, I know you know Samar as well. Is this how you'd spend your weekend? Um, I would probably get off the ice, but that would be in an excess of caution. <laughs> Normally in Samaritz, I'm afraid it's a, 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 a rather nice drink in front of a hot fire, <laughs> which is the, one of the ways to experience it. But you've actually been to Nomad. That's one of the reasons you're there. Yet I've been there for three days now. It is fabulous. You mentioned the hotel. Uh, it was actually due to be completed in December after almost a nine-year renovation. It hasn't. Consequently, the art is displayed amongst the crumbling walls and the polythene. But the, the result is quite dramatic and beautiful. And sustainability is the big theme here. Uh, get out of the glass. way of that car, Tom. I can hear that car coming for you. <laughs> I know. It's beautiful. <laughs> I think it's a Ferrari. Don't ask me. I'm not a car expert. It's <laughs> revving its engines. Um, talking about sustainability and hearing a car rev its petrol uh, exhaust at me. Um, yes, so a lot of the work here is recycled Murano glass. Uh, Ralph Sachs is here. He's in person. He's brought a wonderful collection of recycled wood. There's a two-meter-long sledge, furniture. Um, and speaking of Murano glass, my favorite work here is by the Jamaican New York artist Hugh Fittleder, who has uh, made vases and masks inspired by what he calls the raw emotional intent intensity of shape and curves of African masks. They really are a sight to behold. I wasn't allowed to wear my backpack in there because apparently someone turned around and knocked one on the floor. Oh, wow. Well, what's on your uh, agenda today then? Well, at Nomad, there is a special lunch with Gucci. They are launching a partnership with Nomad called Artist in Flux. That's involving young people and international artists and upcoming artists showcasing their work on the theme of movement. And then closer to home, uh, those who can make it here in time or near the area, uh, Tyler Brulé is hosting drinks at Hotel Stefani. So lively conversation and a chance to browse the pop-up shop from 4.30 to 6.30. And, of course, tomorrow you will know it's Monocle on Sunday. We have a two-hour special edition at the hotel with very high-profile guests. So you can listen live. You can actually turn up and be in the audience or listen to the podcast. Excellent. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Tom Webb speaking to us in Samaritz, uh, and it sounds like he's got a busy day today. What yes. about you, Deepo? Um, well, of the 95 million Nigerians expected to vote today, my extremely large extended family, I think, makes up about 5 million of them. <laughs> um, so I will be in touch with them throughout the day um, to find out kind of, you know, how things are going and, and, and sort of get the, the reports from the street. Excellent. That's Deepo Faloyan, who's a journalist. He's author of Africa is Not a Country, an excellent book which uh, is available now. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day. But for now, thanks for listening.